0: Well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us in this worship on the first Sunday of 2023. And we know from uh, Pastor Dave's sermon last Sunday uh, that New Year's will not fall on a Sunday for 11 more years. Uh, But in this new year, I do encourage you, uh, like uh, Bob said, to pick up a Bible reading plan on the way out. Uh, We try and do that as a church family every year. And it may sound like a lot to you. And and, and if it is uh, too much for you to do, if this is your first time doing it, Uh, Please just do the New Testament this year. Uh, Just be consistent. Uh, If you find that you do get behind, uh, you skip a day or or a week, and you feel like you have to try and make everything up, uh, don't feel the burden that you have to make everything up. Just start again that day. Uh, We have uh, this tendency sometimes to quit things that we can't perfect, but we really just need more of God's Word than we had the day or the year before. And so if you can't read it all, uh, at least read some of it daily instead of quitting because you can't do it all. I think that doing so will make a major difference in each of our lives and in the life of the church, and so I encourage you to pick one up on the way out. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to Luke. And we are in chapter 12 and verse 35 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48 is our passage today, and that passage can be found on page 871 if you are using a church Bible page 871. Luke 12 and verse 35. And and before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship. Uh, We thank you uh, for your faithfulness to us over the last year, uh, especially in your provisions through the church family uh, to get close to our budget this past week. We thank you for, for this family. And as we come to your word, Uh, Please speak to us in a way that only you can by the Spirit, uh, that you would magnify Jesus in our hearts and in our lives. Help us more and more to long for and live for that coming day where we might be with Him and with you face to face. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are in the midst of a set of Jesus' teaching about discipleship, uh, predominantly in light of His first and His second coming, which should transform all of our current priorities. That since he has come in his advent, which we celebrated at Christmas, and he will return a second time, that that changes drastically how we live in the here and in the now. And we as believers and as Christians are to frame our thinking and our living with Jesus's two advents as undeniable realities. And therefore our lives given to us by him as not to be wasted by being consumed with trivial things. Uh, Jesus has just spoken about a proper attitude towards material possessions and the stewardship of them, not a preoccupation with them, whether we have a lot or a little. And in our text this morning, Jesus speaks about a faithful readiness in waiting for his return. You know, we are generally not a people who know how to wait. Everything has become very uh, instant, email, text, we want our, our news in quick sound bites. We're gathering information these days more and more, not from books, but from blog posts, uh, shopping online instead of going to the store, Amazon Prime, stream this, stream that, blah, 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 instant gratification. Sometimes I'll open up the microwave at our house and I will find a half of a cup of coffee in it and it's already cold. And I know that Laura probably put it in there, punched in a minute or so, and before that timer got down to zero, she was likely tending to a kid or a dog or a fish or one of the other thousand things she's responsible for and completely forgot about this coffee uh, because it's hard to wait. And the longer that we have to wait, the more forgetful we become of that which we are waiting for. And that's not just coffee, brothers and sisters, that we can often become forgetful of that which we are waiting for. But waiting, uh, expectantly, is perhaps one of the primary facets of following Jesus. And it is the topic of his teaching in our text to which he gives to us both great encouragement and great warning in the form of three parables, that in the waiting, we don't forget the reality of Jesus' advents. We read in verse 35 and look at the first parable, and Jesus says there, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning The first parable gives to us a positive visual of the blessedness of servants who are ready for their master's return. There's a happiness experienced by those who stay awake. You know, I think it is that when one of us becomes a Christian, there's a whirlwind of experiences and emotions that can often come with that conversion. Uh, There's something of an eye-opening reality and and mind-blowingly so. That even though you may have heard the gospel and have had some facts stored up in your mind, uh, when it is actualized in the heart by the Holy Spirit, it's as if everything changes before your very eyes. I was just talking to someone who had a cataract surgery, asking him how he feels, and he said it's like a whole new world. Every color seems to pop. Everything is so much brighter and clearer. I didn't realize that this is what things actually look like. And there's something of the same effect in the new birth. You understand things more clearly, the world and and humanity and and God and and the sinful heart and and why things are the way that they are. And there's this new desire for life change and a newfound understanding of the beauty and joy of even things like repentance. Uh, There's a love for people, even the ones who have been historically difficult for you to love. And, And the Bible becomes this thing not to check mark because you have to read it, but because you actually want to read it. Because you actually love the Lord, and you want to know him more and more. And coming to worship then becomes more of a joy than it is a chore. Uh, You want to eat of the preached word. Uh, The songs sung, they hit differently. Uh, Relationships you have, categories for people, they change. Who needs Jesus? Who doesn't know him? And some of the things you used to live for and strive for uh, become a lot less important and consuming. I remember when I first became a Christian, I felt this high. I remember thinking, I'm just going to listen to praise music for the rest of my life. And that feeling is because everything is so new, so vibrant, uh, that it all just seems to pop. But the majority of the Christian life is not lived in that initial 15 minutes of highs. The majority of the Christian life is lived after that high fades away quite a bit, and time continues to go on, and you still gotta go to work and study and pay your bills and wash the dishes, et cetera, et cetera. And then the routine sets in, and excitement can give way to familiarity and repetition and that initial zeal will either turn into this love that has grown cold or it will birth a different and a more mature kind of zeal of perseverance and trust and intentionally pressing into Jesus more and more even when you don't feel like it. I think it is that perhaps one of the greatest trials to our faith and a big threat to holiness of life is the waiting game because after time has passed, more and more, we can almost forget what it is that we are waiting for. And we can drop our eyes and lower our chins and not fixate our minds on Christ's first coming, nor therefore on his second coming. And in the wait then, we can so easily live our lives as if what is inevitable is not even going to happen at all. At least not as a reality that impacts us today. Jesus, prior to going to the cross, he's so focused and his followers, and his people, even with his own sufferings right around the corner. And he knows that waiting with faithful patience and mature zeal is going to be one of the Christian's biggest battles. And this parable here, this visual acts like a wake-up call of sorts and an alarm bell for many of us who may have become drowsy in the waiting. The picture is of a great house without its master. The Lord of the estate has gone away but he is expected to be back. And in this parable, the master is away at a wedding feast, and that means he could return at the second watch or the third watch, which could be right before midnight, maybe after midnight, maybe even into the wee hours of the morning. But his servants know that he's going to return, and so they stay dressed for action. Literally, their loins are girded. And what that means is that their long, flowing robes are tucked into their belts because their legs need to move freely when they hear that knock. You let your robes hang loose when you know there's not gonna be any action. You tuck those suckers in, and so they don't interfere when you are anticipating that there will be action. And their lamps are lit, and this is an era without streetlights, flashlights, nightlights, and so lamps had to be dressed and lit so that your eye could see and be ready to turn to that door when that knock inevitably comes. And from the outside of that house, the master would see that warm light streaming to the streets through the windows openings because he would know that my people are inside and they are anticipating me and they are prepared and ready for my coming. And they have this mindset of anticipation and expectation, which really takes uh, quite a bit of concentration to fix our minds upon this one thing, to gather the strength of our being to focus upon his arrival. First Peter 1.13 Peter tells us there, to gird the loins of our minds for action, to be sober-minded, to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, which tells us a little bit of the concentration we need to have, to not be distracted and therefore no longer anticipate what is inevitable. I mean, we've already seen Jesus' warnings on how material things, the abundance of them can distract us or the lack of them can distract us, which is why we need to be girded, lamps lit, and expectant, which is, in a sense, to be healthily detached from that which is temporal, perishable, and fleeting so that our treasure would be with him and not on earth without him which is exactly what Jesus says in the last verse of our last passage, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. God's people are pictured here to have their treasure and their hearts with Jesus in his second advent. This is a call for all of Jesus' followers to be prepared, expectant, and ready for his return. And that first parable could have ended right there with that image of ready and waiting servants. But the blessedness of his eager people, Jesus wants to spell it out more. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. The blessedness, the happiness of the master's faithful servants is that the master whom they serve will actually gird himself and serve them when they recline at the table. This is a role reversal that somehow the master acts like a servant and the servants get served by the master. Now we've become accustomed to this idea because of the very gospel message that Jesus Christ has come to give his life as a ransom for the many. We are used to the picture of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Many of us are very familiar with texts like John 13, where Jesus girds himself and takes a towel and a basin of water and goes from disciple to disciple, and he washes their feet like a slave would wash the filthy feet of the invited guest. We are familiar with these scenes of condescension in his first advent, which really are pointers to the cross itself. That is, Jesus serves us by taking our filth into his hands and washing them clean. And we have to be willing to give that filth into his hands. So Jesus serves those who believe in him by taking their filthy sin and by his shed blood upon the cross washes us whiter than the snow by dying in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, and defeating the power of sin and death in his resurrection. The gospel is Jesus's condescending love, and we too must own our sin and give it to him and turn away from it. This abject humility of Jesus' first advent, Paul uh, references it in Philippians 2 and 5 of this mind of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the entire first advent, isn't it? A life lived in increasingly humble servitude for the Son of God. But the text continues there. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is this exaltation that follows Jesus's humiliation. And Jesus knows this, for he says this post-cross and post-resurrection, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And yet, what is it that Jesus decides to do with all this authority? And this exaltation of himself. He says in our text of the master, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. One of the things that Jesus will do in his exalted and glorified state with all power and authority, one of the things that he will do is to gird himself and serve the ones who longed for his return. Jesus in the incarnation washed feet and bled on the cross. Jesus in his glorification, somehow, he somehow has the same exact heart for his people. And we wouldn't have believed that the exalted Christ would do this for us unless he said it. That he would, as our master, assume the servant's attire and lead us, as it were, to a place where we can lounge and be fed, and have all our wants and needs supplied by our master himself. That Jesus' heart, in his first and humble advent, born in a manger and dying on a cross, will in his second advent exhibit that very same exact heart. Lord of all, he is servant of his people, and it is then that our robes may hang loose, and our lamps can go out, and everything we've waited for and expectation will be actually realized, no more focused listening and mind-girded for the one who is coming. For at that point, our ongoing existence is predicated upon the fact that he has come. Alexander McLaren speaks of Christ's uh, forever servanthood in this way. He says, the servant Christ serves us here by washing us from our sins in his own blood, both in the one initial act of forgiveness and by the continual application of that blood to the stains contracted in the mirey ways of life. The Lord and servant serves his servants in the heavens by leading them cleansed to his stable and filling up every soul with love and with himself. This is the way that Jesus serves us forever, by filling us with love and filling us with himself for all time. I mean, brothers and sisters, this is not our Lord and Savior whom you want the dignity of serving with our lives. To be ready and expectant for his return so that this reunion will be utterly joyful. And so this first parable gives to us a positive visual of the blessedness of servants who are ready for their master's return. In verse 39, we see the second visual, which Jesus gives in contrast to the first one. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Uh, The visual of the parable shifts here from a master who's eager to serve those ready for him to a thief now that robs a person of what he or she has. The imagery is moving from encouragement to warning. The master's arrival is welcomed by his people who know and long for him. This thief is unknown and unwelcomed, and his arrival means trouble, uh, disaster, uh, loss, rather than blessing. The second coming of Jesus is going to be the best thing for some, and it's going to be the worst thing for others. And what is it that makes a difference? Uh, a preacher by the name of Bob Deffenbaugh on the difference between whether Jesus is a welcome master or a dreaded thief, he says the difference is a relationship There's a loving bond between the master and his servants. They know and love each other. The servants await his return because of who he is. The homeowner does not know the thief, nor does he wish to. He hopes the Lord never comes, for his coming is viewed as bringing a loss. Uh, Brothers and sisters, if you were to somehow know that Jesus were coming very soon, perhaps by the end of this week, would it be more of a loss to you? or a blessing upon you? Were the things that you've been investing in today, your efforts, uh, your thoughts, your dreams and aspirations, your investment of your family's time, would it be considered lost? Or were the things you invest in today, your efforts, your thoughts, your dreams and ambitions, your investments of your family's time make a whole lot of sense because you've been longing for this very moment of Jesus' return? It is often that since his return seems so delayed that we get so caught up in the knickknacks of things that really aren't all that important when all is said and done. And Jesus' point here to us is that some will be ready and some will be not ready. And he's saying, be ready. Jesus calls himself, you're the son of man, which is a reference to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This title is associated with the end of history that one like a son of man is going to come upon the clouds and receive an everlasting dominion and a kingdom which will not pass away. Revelation chapter 1, where Bob just read from that book this morning. Chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Titus 2, 13 speaks of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. His coming is going to be cosmic and undeniable, and yet it still will be for so many, so unexpected and bring great loss and devastation. You know for those of you who want to put off following Jesus for another day in some distant future, please don't wait to do it. For those of you who think I have all the time in the world uh, to take Jesus more seriously just a little bit later, uh, please don't think like that. You need a real relationship with the Lord and Savior, our Master. You need real forgiveness for sins, actual repentance for perhaps the direction of life you lived unto this point. You want to be ready to meet Him, and the ones who are ready are the ones who know Him currently. And so the delay of Christ's return can produce eager expectancy and anticipation in His servants or it can produce great and unexpected loss for those who barely think about him at all. And we see how this is played out more in the next parable, verse 41. We continue. Peter said, "'Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all?' And the Lord said, "'Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time?' Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes.' Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to go and eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at, and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This third parable visualizes a life after Jesus' return. This is the afterlife, and there's going to be varying levels of enjoyment and varying levels of judgment based on what we do with Jesus here. This is both a positive and a negative visual, which functions as either an encouragement or a warning. The positive visual is viewed from a management perspective, that our master entrusts us with a responsibility over his household, that we are to care for his people and feed them at the right time. That if a servant is faithful, that when he returns, that servant is going to be entrusted with the enjoyment of more responsibility even over everything he has. This is called a promotion. And I don't know exactly what this looks like in eternity, but while there's definitely an aspect of rest and reclining a table and the Son of Man serving His people with Himself, there really is going to be this aspect of ongoing worship and heavenly work. That rest and ongoing stewardship are two sides of the same coin when speaking of our eternal existence. That heaven uh, will be more heaven to the degree that we've been faithful here. Now, I think there is an aspect where Jesus is singling out those who are entrusted with a kind of leadership, especially pastors and elders, and how they care for his people and how they treat the church. At the end of the book of John, when Jesus is asking Peter, if he loves him, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me more than these? He asks him three times. Peter says, yes, I do. You know all things. And Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed them that somehow love for Christ is measured by love for the church. Love for Christ is measured by love for the church. There's really no way around that. People who claim to follow Jesus and don't love the church, they don't really love Jesus. And what does it mean to love the church? It means to give them the word. It means to care for souls, uh, to serve his people, not to use them, but to fend for them, defend them, uh, protect them from error shepherd them, to look out for them, to feed them the word, that is how we are to be faithful until he returns. And if you're newer here, maybe you've only been here a couple months, and, and, and you're wondering why is the pulpit the way that it is here, why don't we do a collection of trendy sermon series topics and react to every current event and show movies and things like that? You know, I don't necessarily prefer to preach a New Year's Day sermon on people getting cut into pieces. Uh, or preach on money and materialism over the Christmas holidays. But really our heart is we just want to be faithful to the text and feed God's people the stuff he tells us to feed them. Uh, Jesus does refer to the word of God as food. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if the word is somehow more important than food, then the best way to care for you all is to give you a lot of food so that we can grow. And sometimes the question will come up, well, why aren't we doing what the more popular churches are doing? I mean, look at their crowds. What about this or that thing, this fat or that one, this gimmick right here, et cetera? What do you want the reputation of our church to be out there? What about evangelism? Well, what about evangelism? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, how do we actually make disciples of all the nations? Jesus says, by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's the same word. It's the same food that his servants are supposed to give out. And, and uh, I and, and the elders, we, we care very, maybe a little bit, but not that much about our reputation out there. I think we care a little bit more about what someone else thinks. And for verses like 2 Timothy 4 and 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, you hear that second advent language? By his appearing and his kingdom, what does he say? Preach the word. And there's a sense where as we think on Jesus, uh, we do care more about what he wants than what anyone else wants. And then we we preach on the second coming, even with the uncomfortable phrases like being cut into pieces. Uh, It's not because we don't care about people. It's because we know the Lord does care about people. And if he tells us to preach his word, then we're just gonna preach his word unapologetically trusting that he knows what he's doing, and and we're not gonna lean on our own understanding, but in all of our paths, we're gonna acknowledge him, and he will make our paths straight, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We wanna be faithful and wise managers over his household. This ain't our household. It's his household, and we just wanna be true and to give the portion of food at the proper time, because blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And so with the advent of Jesus in mind, it really does change the way we feed the people in the here and in the now. But this isn't only for preachers and teachers of the word that a love for Jesus is shown forth in a love for the church. This is for everyone who's been entrusted, has heard, understands this gospel. It's for all who know about Jesus. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. It's not only the feeders, it's also the eaters of the word as well. That each of us are called to be faithful to be self-giving, even if we aren't preachers, to care for the same flock. That's why there's so many one another commandments in the New Testament. We are all to watch over all of our souls, to give our best in worship and not the leftovers. We are to love our neighbors, especially those of the family of God. If we wanna be like Jesus, then we will humbly serve like him in self-denying ways so that others might come to know him more and more. This might mean not caring as much about being all that cool or popular. It's not that cool to be Christian right now and caring more about ministering to those who no one else does. This might mean giving more to the cause of Christ than we have so done in the past. This might mean making a diligent effort to be more an intimate part of this church, Ohano, which means saying no to other competing interests, even when those competing interests are good things. It means to self-deny and to self-give like our Savior did for his bride, the church. So we want to do the same for that same bride and have the same love for the same church. That the more we are devoted to the master's cause, and the more we are faithful with the stewardship he has entrusted to each of us, the more heaven is really gonna be heaven to us. And so that's a positive visual and encouragement. The negative aspect is this, and it's visualized in three kinds of judgments, uh, being cut into pieces and assigned with the unfaithful, a more severe beating or a relatively lighter beating, and each respective to the degree of what we do according to what we know. I don't think anyone here is ignorant of the fact that giving yourself to Jesus and giving yourself to his church and in that order is what we're supposed to be doing. That's not new information for most of us here. And that's what usually happens when you have that initial salvation. You naturally know, I got to give myself more to Jesus, and I'm going to get plugged into the church. But again, what happens over time is that since Jesus is, is seemingly so long in coming, that that initial zeal can fade, and it is then that we start living for other things instead. And the worst of it is seen in this parable, Uh, the servant beats up the other servants and eats and drinks and gets drunk. And this is the image of self-gratification at cost to others. This is a picture of harming God's household, neglecting and abusing the church because Jesus, he just hasn't been around for a long time, and I don't know if he's coming back. And while this picture here is more extreme, I think we all can so easily become a little too invested in this world because of the delay of the next one. We too can all so easily become a little too invested uh, in the world's status Accolades, uh, praise, applause, uh, opinions, hobbies, uh, the world's sports, selfish gratification. We can be a little too invested in these things and therefore less invested in the coming kingdom and the word going forth in the meantime. And Jesus is very explicit that when we live like this, there is a judgment that will come cut into pieces and assigned a place with the unfaithful or unbelievers is a graphic description of the worst kind of eternal judgment. And while a severe beating or a relatively lighter beating is not as bad as getting cut into pieces, is still a picture of judgment nonetheless. And Peter, before all of this graphic language, you can tell he wants some clean categories. Is this for us, Jesus, or is this for all them? Do I need to be listening to this part? This part about the judgment because, you know, I'm already a disciple. Jesus doesn't respond to him by saying, yes, this part's only for unbelievers. You guys don't need to think about it. No, Jesus responds to Peter by not even answering him, but by giving this very parable about doing. Verse 43, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. The Christian life is not so much what we say. It's what we do. It's not only what we nod our heads to, but how we each live our lives. Now, is this parable promoting a works-based righteousness? I don't think so. Jesus is about to go to the cross and bleed and die for sinners in the upcoming chapters. But we can have this tendency to dismiss Jesus' words by grasping a doctrine that is not the main premise of his current words, and take that doctrine, and therefore erase these words and dismiss them. Do you think it's surprising at all that people who are going to spend an eternity with Jesus are the ones who are currently looking forward to it and living like it's actually going to happen? Is that shocking? Is it surprising at all that the people who will be in heaven with them actually live for heaven and not this world in this life? I mean, this is not a works-based righteousness at all. This is merely servants who long for and live for and love their master. The temptation in the tension of this text and in the burden of the graphic display of judgment, the temptation is to lighten that burden and to break that tension by reciting, well, Jesus died for our sins. It doesn't matter how you live. He bled for you so you can discount this threefold parable that calls us each to self-reflection. That's not what Jesus does here. That's not what I'm going to do here. Because Jesus even wants a Peter to measure himself by his word. This is Peter who, church tradition says, gets crucified upside down. He dies a martyr. Jesus wants even a Peter to not just have this clean-cut category, but to really measure Peter by his word to see if he really believes what he believes. To see if we really cherish uh, cherish Jesus' first advent and look forward joyfully a girded, lamps lit, and expectant of his second advent so that we may anticipate it by loving him and serving his people as we wait in a kind of godly anticipation. This is what Jesus is asking us to do with these very words of him, to look into the mirror and be very honest with ourselves. Would you please join me in prayer as we close? Oh, Father, these are some of the... um, weightiest parables we find in your word. And Lord, we need grace. God, we need the grace of forgiveness. Uh, We need the ongoing grace of actual life change. Uh, None of us have been ready like we need to be 24 hours a day. And so would you, by your spirit, make us progressively more and more. So loosen our grip on things that we shouldn't grip so hard. Uh, Tighten our grip on things that we should be gripping. Uh, white-knuckled with all our might. Uh, Would you make it so uh, that you would captivate our hearts and our minds by the beauty and the love of Jesus Christ, that our eyes would see him as he really is, so that everything else would simply just look distasteful by comparison? Uh, Help us to never get over the fact that although he is our master and we are his servants, yet your son, God himself, has chosen to serve us and continue to do so. And so would you number our days and give us hearts of wisdom, give us hearts of love and humility, Uh, give us a love for your son and the church, all to your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.